work really hard for two really difficult things that are coming. Next week and probably the following week, I haven't mapped it all out just perfect yet, but we're going to wrestle with God's sovereignty. How does God knowing all things but us having a free will, how do we wrestle those two things together? And then we're going to look at the devastating consequences that God gives for what we're going to read this morning. And there's no easy way to read it. There's no way to look at this and go, oh yeah, this is fine. It's, it's very painful and difficult. But I hope that this morning as we lay the framework of this, that we're able to process a little bit better why this text, why these six verses here, this, this incident that's about to happen, why it is just so, it's a, an infamous moment in Hebrew history. Before we get there, however, let me just remind you that last week we looked at chapter 31. We looked at Bezalel specifically and Aholiab as well, but Bezalel being the first person in all of Scripture explicitly stated that he's given the Spirit of God. A craftsman to accomplish the buildings and the furnishings of their tabernacle. He's the one who has explicitly stated that he's given the Holy Spirit. It's maybe not who we would expect, but I think that's God's point. And we've talked much about this over the summer, is that every single person, regardless of what your gift and your ability and, and what God has called you to, is vital, is actually, the scripture says in Corinthians, indispensable for the work of ministry. I say it all the time, but I need you and you need me and we need us. The local church has been given the authority by Jesus to change the world. We as individuals haven't been given that authority. And so it's important that we gather together as a family, as a family of believers, working together for one purpose and one good. And then we looked briefly at the second paragraph in 31, and it's the Sabbath. And it feels like maybe a strange paragraph to follow that section and to kind of end that section leading into this one. But as we talked about, is the Sabbath was an intrinsic part of the Hebrew culture because God was reminding them that their value that their identity was placed in the fact that they were children of God, rescued by him and rescued for purpose. Again, we in our culture now need that truth just as much as they did then. It doesn't take long for us to consider and to think through what, where do we place our value and our identity? Well, right now, and we're going to talk about this real briefly, but right now, this week, we're... In our community, there's Pride Month, or Pride Week. And we're celebrating sexual identity as the core, the chief, the most important thing about who we are. Well, the Bible speaks differently. The Bible says that who you are first is a son or a daughter of the Creator. And that everything about us, every aspect of our identity needs to flow through that first. And when we submit to Him, then we'll actually find purpose, meaning, We'll actually find a security in our identity and know who we are. We won't have to change back and forth going, well, maybe I am this or, or this or this is how I identify. Or this is the subgroup that I fit into. Rather, the scriptures teach us we submit to Christ and then Christ shows us who we are and gives us everything we need. We talked last week about how maybe not just sexual identity, maybe that's the hot button topic for today, but what about career? Do we place our identity and our value based in what we do? I was 
reflecting on a conversation with one of my friends who is a hockey player uh, in Europe, um, <clears throat> and he shared that a lot of his, uh, a lot of people that he played with, um, I guess there's no way to say this that's, that's nice to say, but most people who retire from professional sports retire because they have to. They either can't do it at the highest level anymore and they're not good enough and they get cut or they get injured and they're no longer able to play. And if your whole life has been, this is what I'm good at, this is how, this is my value, and then you lose that, then who are you? And he said that he watched that happen so many times and I've heard so many other people come to me with that same story. I was no longer able to do this and I didn't know who I was. Well, the point of last week, and as we move into this week, because they forget, but the point of this is that we see that it doesn't matter what circumstances change. It doesn't matter if a certain thing disappears in our life, that, that our value, our identity, who we are, will never change because we are children of God. So that leads us to this very, very difficult text. So let's read the first six verses together. Elisha, I think this monitor is on and causing me some some grief. Maybe it's not, but let's just try that. 32, let me read this together. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What a bizarre few verses. The people who had been crying out in Egypt in slavery for rescue And God steps in and puts Moses as kind of a mediator between them and and brings them out and is faithful through the wilderness and gives them the commands of of God. And actually twice in the giving of those commands, do you remember what the people say? We will do all that the Lord has said. And a couple chapters later, well, we're going to talk about this, but for sure the first three commands that are given are broken. I just want to pause here really quickly because of this. It's very easy for us to kind of look at this and go, how could they possibly? And they're, they're, I'm not defending it by any means. They are in the wrong, and it's clear that they are in the wrong. But I want us to give them a little bit of grace in the sense that we do the exact same thing over and over and over again is God shows his faithfulness to us. He puts a situation in front of us or takes something away from us and that we've called to, and then all of a sudden the next day we turn and we follow the world again. 
I say it this way all the time, we're more a byproduct of our culture than we want to realize. The same is true of them. Where were they rescued from? The nation of Egypt. How many gods did the nation of Egypt have? A lot. They had for generations been growing up in a polytheistic culture and that was what was normal to them. And when the one true God rescues them and takes them out, that's why he starts with command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the one true God. But that's radical, brand new thinking for them. The same is true for a lot of us now. When we come to faith in Christ, especially now in our culture, it's so countercultural to everything we've been taught and we've learned. And it takes time for us to mature and to grow. And we're going to see there's consequences for actions just back then, just like there is today. But God continues to be faithful to forgive and to move forward and to use the people and to call them to himself. So we begin here with this very bizarre verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. If you remember, Moses has gone up and down a couple of times, but he's basically always been with the people until we read in 2418 that Moses actually spends 40 days on the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't have time to explore this, but 40 days and 40 nights, what does that remind you of? What else does it remind you of? What else does it remind you of? What else does it remind you of? Do you get the point? There's there's a correlation here. Jesus, after his ascension, teaches his disciples for how many days? And then he goes up to be with the Father. Moses goes up the mountain to be with God for 40 days and then goes back to be with the people. We don't have time to explore that, but that's just to whet your appetite and go grab some commentaries. That is a rabbit hole to go down that's super fascinating. The point is that Moses is up there for a while, and it says, well, it doesn't really say he's delayed. It says when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. As I read this through, all the commentators said the same thing, is that all the people were quick to move on from Moses as a leader. And this is where it's really important that we know all of Scripture. Because at first glance, you read that and you go, well, that's pretty skeptical, isn't it? Well, actually, if you go through all of Scripture, what you see is that this chapter is referenced in Psalms, in Corinthians, and in Acts. And you might think, well, I don't have the whole Bible memorized. That's okay. There's lots of good resources available for you. And the easiest one you can get is go buy a study Bible that has some cross-references in the side. And when you read a passage, look to it and see, is this talked about elsewhere in Scripture? Because you'll come to Acts 7 where Stephen is on trial for his faith in Jesus. And he begins to remind the Jews of their history, how they escaped Egypt, how they went into the wilderness. But in verse 39, it'll be on the screen, it says this. Our fathers, what? Is it up there? There it is. Our fathers, what? Refused. Refused to obey him thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Now, this is not a new thing, right? In the, in the wandering in the desert is all of a sudden there's no food. So what do they say? And we should go back to Egypt. 
right? And in fact, it goes so ludicrous where they're like, remember all the, all the fresh fruits and vegetables and all the wonderful, like our meat pots were full always. Were they? Because they were crying out for not having anything. When they have no water, we should go back to Egypt. Over and over, we should go back to Egypt. Again, they're a product of their, or they're a byproduct of their culture. They want familiarity and they want to know what's coming. Maybe there's a few of you that can say you want that in your life too. When God changes your circumstances radically, do you go, okay, God, I'm after, I'll follow? Do we go, God, could you just change it back to the way it was? It was actually much easier. I knew what I was doing. I had a routine. Well, the people here, again, they've been following Moses. Moses has been their leader. Moses is gone, and, well, we don't know what to do now. What should we do? Ah, we have an idea. Let's make a new leader. You know what's a great idea? We should follow a golden calf. Spoiler alert, that's a terrible idea. But look at what it says in the text here. And the English kind of hides this a little bit. But when it says the people gathered themselves to Aaron, you lose some of the forcefulness in Hebrew. You could kind of think of it more as the people gathered against Aaron. They gathered against him and went, what are we going to do? And so they say, make us gods. Make us gods who we will follow. And notice Aaron's response. Maybe notice this even more. Aaron's been called already. He's not yet started the assignment, but he's been called to be the priest and his kids. And God, even though he makes awful decision here by just in his cowardice going, yeah, okay, no problem. And we'll see this next week in the, in the text further. He kind of is like when Moses sees what's all happened, he's kind of like the people, they showed up and they were like, oh, we need a God. And he said, so I took the rings and, and, a, and a calf came out. <laughs> Sound like you're talking to a four-year-old, right? Like, oh, I don't know how I stole that. It just happened to be in my backpack. <laughs> no, it's just me? Okay. Anyway, Smonga's never done that, just to be clear. If he has, I don't know it. Is, Aaron has this great moment of cowardice, and, and so he goes, yeah, okay, no problem. Let's, let's have an idea. Let's make you a God. Let's make you a God. Exodus 20, verse 1 says what? You shall have no other gods before me. Command 2 says what? Don't fashion an idol. Don't offer it worship. And in fact, number three, now we kind of think of this differently, but command number three is essentially about misrepresenting God's name. So it's not just about adding a curse word at the end of God. That's kind of how we sometimes think about it, using God's name in vain. It's misrepresenting him. And they're saying here, let's make these gods. And then they say, these are your gods who did what? They brought you out of Egypt. Who actually did? The one true God, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone did that, and now they're misrepresenting him. You kind of get the point, is they're really, oh, there's no nice way to say it. They're really screwing up here. Now, here's the thing, though. We can see this, and we can... I already said it, but we can see it and go, man, how could they do that? But how often do we have the same struggle? 
Romans 7, which I often quote, Paul explains this internal battle that he has. I know what the good and what the right thing is to do. And, and he even says, I want to do that, but what do I end up doing? I end up doing the very thing that I hate. Have you ever had that? Where you've been in a moment where a situation has presented itself to you and you knew what was right and you even felt that you wanted to do what was right but you got sucked in by the sin nature or the people around you or you just made a horrible decision and you did what you knew to be wrong and then you wrestle with that guilt. Well, the good news is that we all are in the same boat together. When we read this, we ought to not be really critical and harsh. We ought to look at this and we ought to see ourselves in this and go, man, how often do I do the same thing? How often do I rely on my own abilities to get through a circumstance? How often do I rely on my own financial means to get out of a situation? How often do I do the things that I think need to be done before I submit my heart to God and say, God, your will, not mine, be done? So the people say, let's make gods to go before us. This is really interesting. I came across this quote from Stuart Douglas. And he points out the similarities between them and our own thinking. He says, it's a struggle with an ability to see that the spiritual world is primary to and in control of the physical and visible world. In order to help his people understand the truth Yahweh insisted on being believed in rather than being seen. It's so much easier to believe in something that could actually be seen. The Israelites, and I would say, and us, are powerfully attracted to the latter option. So much easier to look at and evaluate what we see in front of us and use our logic to determine how we should respond. Maybe you've had this, um, and I've told this story before, but I remember... When I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for seven years in a church, uh, and in a larger church, and, and you know things were going really well, but we knew God was calling us somewhere else, and God was calling us to this little town of 800 people in a small little church, um, and you know cost of living there was next to nothing, and so our salary dropped big time. And I remember going to my banker and being like, okay, we're selling the house, we're moving here, and he's like, oh, so you're taking a promotion? It's like, well... Like, I'll be the only pastor at the church. So he's like, so more responsibility? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And he said, so I bet there's a big pay raise. And I went, no. <laughs> and his, his number, why would you go? And I had to try and explain to him the call of God and doing what was right and defying some logic. Flying in the face of what the world tells me is most important. I'm sure you've had that experience in some way where you're like, I know what I should do and what's right, but everyone's looking at me and going, why would you make that decision? Why would you do that one thing? Why? It doesn't make any sense. Because in those moments, we're recognizing that we believe in God, not just what we see in front of us. But we know that God has called us to things. The people, well, they needed something to see. And what's crazy to me is it's not as though the golden calf was going to get up on its own and walk and lead them. They were going to have to pick it up and carry it. What are they going to do? Like, oh, look, well, look where it's leading me. Right? Like that's, sorry in my head, that was, I couldn't, anyway, let's move on. It's not going to happen is my point. 
But now we get to the point in the text in verse 4 here where we have to really read it to understand it. Sometimes we read this as though what's happening is the people are replacing Yahweh with the golden calf, but that's not what's happening in the text. What's happening in the text is that they're adding it to Yahweh. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Sounds like replacing. But then notice after he makes them, what does he say in verse 5? When Aaron saw that he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's verse 5. What do you see that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What does that mean? Yahweh. We're going to make a feast to Yahweh as we worship these gods as well. They're not replacing Yahweh. They're adding to it. Again, remember they're, they're polytheistic. They're the culture in which they have grown up in. They're adding to it. Now on our bike ride yesterday, we got to a place and I think... Again, no matter what Ernie says, is he's way fitter than I am. And uh, thankfully, we stopped for a while and had a little chat. And we were talking about this exact thing, is in our culture right now, in our Christian culture right now, is we're seeing core doctrines being, ta- or being treated as though they don't matter. One major denomination in Canada in the last number of months took out any statement on the scriptures from their doctrine. Just took it out. It's just gone. So what do they follow? What do they adhere to? What do they submit to? Well, what they're doing is a subtle move to say, I'll submit to whatever is convenient. I don't want to push too hard against the way the culture is. So we'll believe, you know, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We'll believe some of these things. But, but that this has authority over how we should live today, we can't accept that. Well, where does that lead? We're doing the same thing that the Israelites did. We're we're saying, yeah, God will worship you, but we're going to redefine it and we're going to add things or take things away. Essentially, they're saying we're going to worship you in the way that we want to, not in the way that you've called us to. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I couldn't worship a God who would do this or who wouldn't allow this? Well, it's not for us to determine what to take from God. It's us to determine, is God who he says he is? And if he is, then we take him at his word, and we submit ourselves to him. In one of Kevin DeYoung's teachings, he talks about this a lot, and he points this out. He says, they intend to worship the Lord, but by means of a calf. Just because we think we are directing our worship towards God does not mean that God is receiving it as worship. They might have been thinking it was worship to God, but God was looking down on it as abomination. That's a pretty aggressive term, but I think he's right. Is up, we're going to make gods and we're going to worship them, and then we're going to put a feast to the Lord and go, see God, we're worshiping you still. You're still worthy of our praise, but so is the calf. This is why the scriptures will say things like, God is a jealous God, not the jealous that we think of, but because he alone is worthy of praise. He alone is worthy of honor. And when we elevate other things to the same place as God, we're putting God way, way, way down. 
It's not good and it's not right. The Hebrews essentially are saying this. We don't like that God determines what's right and wrong. We want to worship you, but we want to do it in our way. There's a verse in James 4 that our our men's group, a number of, this is months and months ago, but we got stuck here on this verse. James 4, 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Man, if we really ask this and wrestle with it, how much do we love the things of this world? Maybe ask it this way, how much of our money and our time and our efforts do we put into chasing after things of this world? Versus how much of our time, money, and effort do we place in chasing after God? They're mutually exclusive as we cannot love the world and love God. Now we can know that God has created the world and so there are things about the world that we can love. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. We can look out and see the mountains, but we don't love the mountain. We love the creator who made the mountain. We see his beauty. We don't see that beauty. We see his creativity and we go, man, if there's a God who can make this, what else is he capable of? But here's the reality is it's much easier to serve a God who we get to determine or who we get to define. And that's what we're seeing everywhere in today's Christian world. I've said this before, but a number of mainline denominations in Canada are moving away from a historical view of Jesus' resurrection and are saying it's only metaphor. If Jesus' resurrection is only a metaphor, then why did the New Testament writers give their life to defend the gospel? It's not metaphor. But it's a lot easier if we say, oh, it is metaphor. And oh, this part of the Bible, well, that doesn't really apply to today. And well, that, that, that's not that important. Well, well, God really only cares about this. And you know, how many ways do we subtly undermine the text? If we get to determine who we follow, if we get to shape, and maybe don't think of it as maybe a golden calf, but if we get to worship what we want, we get to determine what God is or who God is, well, all of a sudden it becomes really easy because that kind of a God doesn't discipline us. He doesn't tell us what's right and wrong. We determine what's right and wrong. R.C. Sproul says it this way, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them into judgment. Now notice this line. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. When I read that, man, I was stopped dead. We can create a God we want and we can worship that God, but ultimately it's going to be useless for us because it's not going to accomplish anything. It's going to change as often as we choose to change. Rather, we want to submit. We want to submit to Christ, to the one who gave his life in place of ours. The one who said, I know what's right and good and I'm going to teach you how to live in that because ultimately As Romans 8 says, it's going to be for our good. It's not for our ease. It's not for our comfort. But it is because it matters and has purpose. 
we get to join in with God. Submit to him and declare Christ to the nations and say he is worth submitting to. Again, this last week and and moving forward a little bit here is Pride Week here. And what it celebrates is us. Is anywhere in the Bible, do you think, can you remember Jesus saying, blessed are the proud? Blessed are those who take pride in who they are? Or does it say, blessed are the meek? The scripture speaks of humbling ourselves under the God who has created us and knows better than we do what is good for us. And we can try and define that differently all we want, and we can be proud about all kinds of things, but there's only one thing the Bible says that we can be proud of, and what is it? Paul says he will boast in what? In Jesus. That's it. Because only in him do we have hope. Only in him do we find meaning and purpose. Everything else that we seek to find meaning and purpose in will leave us empty at one point in our life. I think it was Mr. Rockefeller, the richest man who lived on his deathbed, that regretted that all he cared about was money because he said it brought him no satisfaction. We can think now it does. But when our... When our life is nearing an end and we recognize that is this all there is, we know that there's something else. The question is, will we submit to Christ before it's too late? The scriptures say that at one day every knee will bow. The issue is not if, the issue is when. Will we submit to Christ now and say, God, Even though I don't understand all of this, I know that you have what's best for me. I know if I follow after you, it will be better. Just think of the Ten Commandments. If we treated people the way that the Ten Commandments calls us to treat people, would people be loved? Would people be cared for? When it says don't murder, God's going, because you know what? It's not going to end well. You take someone else's life and someone else is going to want to take your life. So don't do that. Remember, you, you and they have been created in the image of God and God loves them and cares for them. You don't have the right to take their life. You can go through, and we did go through all the commands and dealt with that. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.20, and I've talked about this lots, but it says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. No different than the Old Testament Israelites who were descendants of Abraham, and Abraham's covenant was, through you all nations will be blessed. God wanted to use this people to bring blessing to the nation, ultimately that they would know who he is. Well, now you and I, on this side of the cross, are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ to the nations. So notice what what Paul says. Okay, we're, we're ambassadors of Christ. It's God making his appeal through us. And because of this, we implore you, be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be reconciled? It means to submit ourselves under him. It doesn't mean redefine him. We as Christians have a very intense, very serious, very important calling. 
And it is to declare Christ and make him known. But we have to declare Christ the way that Christ revealed himself, not the way that I want to reveal him. I am not called to water down God and to say, well, he's okay with this and that, so long as you say you love him. I'm called to read scripture and to submit myself under this and go, God, this is what you have written. This is what you have said. This is what I will do. I will follow you in your ways, on your terms, not my own. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the devastating consequences of this behavior. Because when they're worshiping God, God is not okay with what's happened. He's not like, well, you worship me a little bit. He says, you've broken everything that I've commanded you to do. And again, it's not going to make it easy for us to process. It's still going to be very challenging and very difficult. And if I'm really honest, I don't even know how I'm going to try and explain this real well. You ever have those moments where you sit and you study and you read something and you understand it, but then when you go to try and explain it to somebody else, it falls short? Pray for me this week, because I don't know how I'm going to explain this real well. But I know that God's word is faithful. We as the people of Christ are called to submit in all things to him. This is a pivotal moment in history for the Israelites, but it's no less important for us. Will we take God on his terms, the way that he has revealed himself to us? And will we boldly and courageously stand there, even when the culture around us tells us that that's crazy? Will we love people in the name of Jesus, but be unwilling to just say, yeah, so you can live however you want? Let's love people enough to graciously call them into discipline and correction. Not because I'm smart and I know what's right and I live perfectly, but because God has called us to what is. Let's be those types of followers. Let's pray. God, as we wrestle through, especially these next couple of weeks, of really difficult text. God, would you give us understanding? Would you help us to see how important it is that we take you seriously at your word? That we represent you the way in which you have called us to represent you, not in ways we determine on our own. May we as as this local church, and I pray all those that are visiting as well, that when they go back to their home local churches, that they would renew their, their commitment to submitting their hearts under Scripture. That they would live in a way that you have called us to, that we would be empowered to do that by submitting to the Holy Spirit. God, it's through this submission that the world's going to see that we belong to you. It's through this submission the world's going to think that we're crazy and hopefully be able to open doors of conversation. May we not try and redefine you when there's popular issues of the day that we're not sure how to address, may we address it in Scripture. May we see your grace and your goodness and your mercy, and may we also see your correction and your discipline. As it says in Hebrews, you correct those that you love. You discipline your sons and daughters. 
because it is for our benefit. God, may we submit to you this week and all that we do. Thank you again for this morning. Thank you for those who are visiting. I pray that each of us would walk out of this place a deeper focus on you. God, be with us in the coming days ahead. We love you. Amen.